Hello and welcome to Coffee with Conservationists, the podcast where I sit down with anyone who dedicates their life to protecting, researching and documenting the natural world. I talk to them about their work in wildlife conservation, human and wildlife coexistence, community projects and worldwide environmental issues. You can find out all about the reasoning behind the Coffee Connection on my Instagram at Coffee with Conservationists. Today I'm featuring coffee from Girl with a Portafilter. They very kindly gifted me a bag of their coffee to try, and as usual I'll be talking more about them and who they are at the end of this episode. Now, during this episode I did reference a conversation I had with someone, and that conversation was supposed to actually be released uh, as this episode before this one. Due to a few technical hitches, this one isn't quite ready yet, so there's actually a bit of a sneak peek of the contents of episode 18 in this one for you. In this episode, I talk with Karina Reyes, a conservation lobbyist, National Geographic explorer, and director and founder of the Centre for Sustainability Philippines. We talk about some of her flagship conservation projects, the biodiversity of the Philippines, why it's so dangerous being an environmental activist in the Philippines, and much, much more. Hi, Karina, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for taking your time to be here and, and talk to me. Um, it's really nice to kind of talk to you after seeing your, your work up for, for quite a while now. Um, we'll start it off by kind of getting to know you. Could you tell us a bit about you and... I guess, where your interest in the natural world first started. Yeah, certainly. So firstly, thank you so much for having me also. It's been such a great podcast actually to follow myself. Um, so it's really nice. Obviously, it's a real honor to be featured. I've learned a lot already from what the, the interviews that I've heard. Um, so about myself, so I am Australian Filipino. I was born and raised in Australia and moved here to the Philippines about seven years ago and fell into a project in forest conservation. And together with my local team, um, we established the Center for Sustainability PH, which is now a women-led youth environmental nonprofit from Palawan Island, uh, known as the Philippines' last ecological frontier. So our mission is to conserve the Philippines' last 3% of remaining pristine forest through legal establishment of protected areas or national parks. And we do this through community organizing, scientific research and political lobbying. And then from there, the major pillars kind of uh, as the foundation of our work is land conservation, reforestation and citizen science. And then our work comes from communities, is for communities and goes to communities. So that's like a very quick roundup of the work that we're doing. Um, but it was quite a journey before, you know, I came to this very succinct description of who and what we're about as an organization. Uh, so my own personal background is political sciences. And I started uh, doing community work in different areas, education, women's rights, housing rights, uh, and then also like sustainable development. And I was doing this, I started in Europe and then I was in Latin America for a number of years. And finally, I also spent some time in North Africa. 
And it was while I was in Europe, while I was doing a distance education course that I learned about what environmental security is. And during that time, I was working in some really vulnerable places, um, especially to natural disasters, because I was working in a lot of slum areas that are generally in places that in, on land that nobody wants to live on, which basically means like very sloped areas, mountainsides uh, and the like. And I realized after this course that, you know, I've, I've been so focused on, you know, poverty alleviation and finding ways for communities to overcome impoverishment, whether that's through education or land tenure rights, but with no uh, understanding or real connection with, with, our, with our very immediate environments. And that's when I completely changed direction and I started looking at how to look at that intersection of community and environment and being able to connect immediately, immediately with our environment as a means of overcoming impoverishment, basically. That's amazing. And you've given a really nice overview of the sort of work uh, Center for Sustainability Philippines does, which was actually my next question. So you kind of answered that already. That's great. Um, and I'm talking sort of straight into a flagship conservation project of yours. Um, and that's the efforts to conserve the, the Cleopatra's needle critical habitat and sort of the area land surrounding that. Could you kind of give us a rundown of, of what that project's all about? Yeah, so that was kind of the genesis of, of our group end of our work before we formally incorporated as an institution. And basically that started because Cleopatra's Needle is also known to the local indigenous communities as Buyos Niibai, which basically means if you can imagine like a, a bun that you have at the top of your head, it refers to that because if you look at Cleopatra's Needle, the reason why it's got that name is it's got this really amazing obelisk. Uh, it's a very, very pointy mountain. It's the highest mountain of our city, of Puerto Princesa City. It measures 1,593 meters above sea level. And so the project first started because the indigenous communities there were having a lot of troubles with outsiders coming in uh, and not having basically land tenure over their ancestral domain. And to be able to get ancestral recognition or indigenous recognition of, of their area, it's a very long process. It's about 10 to 15 years because of the many bureaucratic steps. And meanwhile, they were seeing that their forest was disappearing, their ancestral domain was disappearing. And so basically we ended up coming in uh, later in the game with this idea of, okay, we can be a stopgap for you. We, we can't do the work, you know, the years of work for indigenous recognition, but we can give you something in between, which is an environmental designation, which gives you that piece of paper that recognizes that you're in charge of the area because you are the first peoples of this area. And then from there, you can use that as a jumping off board to get ancestral recognition. Mm. And so this tribe is the Batak tribe. There are only 200 members left. Uh, so if you can imagine, it's extreme, they're extremely threatened. They're, you know, I would argue that they're even more endangered than some of the species that we're trying to protect. Mm. And so from there, it was basically a process of us taking a lot of stabs in the dark, trying to understand how to establish a protected area or a national park. Uh, 
And so we, now we have like a formula. Now we understand how it works according to the law. And so basically the three steps are community organizing, uh, scientific research, and then with the support of the communities and the proof of science, you lobby that to local politicians to pass a law to declare the area. And along the way, so it's a very long journey, um, but along the way, we, we did lots of other activities also to build those relationships with our communities because it's not, you know, they're not just going to hand over their ancestral domain to an environmental designation without really building a relationship with us. So we did many other activities throughout this time. We had, you know, youth environmental education. We had management planning workshops to really envisage what they wanted in the future after the area was protected. We had enforcement training so that the local communities already knew how to enforce the area and what laws were going to be relevant to enforce the protection of the area. We also did ecotourism, livelihood training so that they had an opportunity to do alternative livelihood later on. Uh, research as well as uh, reforestation project of one of their key livelihood species, which is called Almasiga. And so, yeah, it was a very long process, um, but it basically followed those steps. So we started with community consent, which took us about two and a half years. And then at the same time, we were doing scientific research. So we had some wonderful international interns from universities from across Europe um, who came as well as local Filipino students also, different researchers who came in and helped us gather the really important scientific data to talk, you know, so that we could have proof of all the amazing fauna and flora that we have in this area. And then after that, that was when the real fun began and we had to do lots of door knocking with our local politicians, so from the village level all the way to national government. And all in all, it took about five years. Wow, that was a yeah, pretty lengthy yeah. process. I, I know that a lot of my listeners are students at the minute in terms of, you know, a lot of them are on scientific degrees and kind of really want to know where they can make a difference and where they can take their degree. So it's really good to talk to someone like you who has experience with kind of scientific research expeditions and kind of will be able to give people a, an overview like that of, of what goes into, yeah, protecting land areas. It's uh, yeah, very, very lengthy process. Um, sounds really complicated, but the end result, <laughs> obviously very rewarding. Um, I mean, you're a, you're a National Geographic explorer. Is that right? I am. So, um, yes. so obviously to, to my listeners, that's a very prestigious title, kind of the the famous yellow cover, the, the magazine, everything that goes with it is very kind of, it's always steeped in, in conservation, wildlife, culture, history, exploration, all those big topics. Um, it's generally most mostly a, a brilliant organisation and publication. Could you kind of give me a, I guess, an overview of how you got started working with them and the sort of work you've done with National Geographic. Yeah, certainly. So we started, uh, I became a National Geographic Explorer by applying for a grant. So for all of the students that are out there listening, I definitely recommend that you hop on the website, National Geographic Society to have a look at the different 
kinds of grants that they provide. They have the Early Career Grant, which is such a great grant for you know, young and upcoming students and researchers who are looking to make an impact, haven't finished their degree yet, but you know, are definitely on that path. This is such a great booster to kickstart that. And so the first project that I applied for and was lucky enough to win straight off the bat was a citizen science project. So again, still at Cleopatra's Needle. And the idea and what we did in the end was upskill our local indigenous and local community enforcers how to conduct biodiversity research by themselves without depending on outside scientists. So to give you an idea, Palawan is located in far west Philippines. We're very far flung. We're actually from the southern tip of Palawan, we can actually see Malaysia. We're closer okay. to Malaysia and Borneo than to kind of quote unquote mainland Philippines. And so one of our biggest issues has been this shortage of, of scientific knowledge and scientific capacity here. And what that means, especially in a time like COVID, is that you know, we're seeing a lot of researchers now that have massive gaps because they don't have access to their research sites. And so in a lot of ways, this project was quite fortuitous. It happened, it started in 2018. And the whole point is to you know, pass the baton over. And so the indigenous communities, while they're doing their patrols through the forest, they can you know, wander through and at the same time do biodiversity data collection. And so it's a quite, it was quite a long project. Uh, it involved two training expeditions. And so they learned all the things that normal scientists do. Field journaling, data collection, uh, laying down transects, different kinds of trapping methods, uh, specimen collection, specimen preservation, basically all the things that a scientist would do. Uh, and it was incredible. It was a in, you know, very empowering experience for them to realize that you know, they could do it by themselves. Um, and then from there, the, the second major chunk of the project was to give them communication trainings so that they're confident to not only do the research, but later on share it. I think we're realizing now more and more, especially as these kind of, you know, existential deadlines are creeping closer and closer, that we all have a role in science communications and who better to communicate what's happening than those who are directly there in the forest living and depending on these resources every day. Mm. And so that was the first project. Um, and that was, you know, it was an incredible project. It's in total, we worked out that it's a 315 hour course. Uh, so it's a, you know, it's not a, it's not a small feat for our local communities. Some of them who haven't, you know, even finished high school, um, so yeah, it was a really big deal. And so that kind of kickstarted my relationship with National Geographic and what's so incredible about National Geographic, besides this obviously whole mythology mm. behind yeah. that yellow border, <laughs> uh, is all the support that they give, uh, explorers and grantees. And that goes from, you know, communication trainings to photography trainings. I'm not, you know, I'm not an, I would say that I'm in a lot of ways, I'm not a typical explorer if ever there was one in terms of the fact that I'm not a scientist. I'm also not a visual storyteller. Uh, and these are the two things that I think a lot of explorers are very well known for. I'm a community organizer. I'm a political scientist. So it's a little bit different, but you know, 
like everybody else within the National Geographic community, we're all trying to create change and impact through bold and innovative ways in our communities. And so what's been so amazing with National Geographic is, you know, the support that they've given me, especially personally, to be more confident as a science communicator, as a public speaker, and to also, you know, push that kind of advocacy part that I, we didn't really do in the past. And the funny thing is, is that we probably wouldn't be sitting here right now if it wasn't for National Geographic, because they're the ones that were very encouraging of me getting onto Instagram and using social media as a platform. And, you know, they were like literally the ones that told me how to use it. So <laughs> um, for a long time, I was very much a quiet conservationist, I guess you could say. So it's been, yeah. it's been a real, yeah. No, but that's that's really amazing because I think that, yeah, definitely the importance of storytelling and science communication. I'll never stop stressing that enough. It's so important and especially on a on a local level. Um, Falmouth is on the same campus as some of the science courses for Exeter Uni. And they um, we've been told sort of half jokingly that they're our biggest competition in getting into the wildlife filmmaking industry because they are good at filmmaking, a lot of them, they're good with the camera, but they also have the science knowledge to back it up. Um, whereas we don't have all the science. But I think the, yeah, talking to kind of some, some researchers that I know, um, they've said that they're looking more and more for people, for researchers and, and filmmakers on the ground, like in, in local areas, instead of sending people from uh, the sort of natural history hub here in Bristol, around the world they're they're reaching out to people in the areas that they want to get research or get footage captured and i think yeah the importance of kind of community empowerment in conservation is um is one that i spoke about with with a, a grad student here recently and kind of yeah could, could not stress enough um so that's really amazing and it's good to know that you got the the support as well um, from National Geographic and, and know how, how supportive they are for the people who work with them. Um, yeah, I, definitely. I kind of want to talk about something that's a bit, I guess it's a bit more kind of, um, I guess sad actually, because I, I've had some experience um, knowing uh, an activist, uh, Mitzi, who I've worked with in the past and I've had the kind of, you know, pleasure of working with her virtually on a few different projects and through her uh, work on social media and her campaigning I know that it, it's really dangerous to care about the environment and to kind of be a climate justice activist in the Philippines. Can you kind of give me a breakdown of, of why that is? So sort of why, for my listeners who aren't aware, why is the Philippines such a dangerous place for just to be an environmentalist? Gosh, that's such a big question. It's very loaded. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. No, not at all. It's, it's So firstly, for your listeners who don't know, the Philippines is the second most dangerous country for land defenders and environmental activists. We are the most dangerous country in Asia. And the great irony there is we're actually the oldest democracy in Asia because of our colonial history, first the Spaniards for 500 years and then the Americans for another 100 years. I think to 
look at why it's so dangerous for Filipinos and here in the Philippines. Unfortunately, it does go back to our colonial history in a lot of ways. Uh, what you have here now in the Philippines is a, an oligarchy. So maybe like 50 to 100 families that rule effectively over you know, the 7,000 plus islands that we have here in the Philippines. And what that means is that we have a democracy, but at the same time, we have a parallel system where there is patronage. We also have many issues with corruption, like we do in a lot of emerging democracies. And we have a a cultural foundation here that is based on the importance of family. And that's a very, very good thing and a very important thing. But what that also means is that, you know, I think especially in the West, you know, I grew up in Australia and I'm very familiar with this idea of separating family or personal from, from public life and politics. Mm. Um, and that's definitely not the case here yet. They're very much tied in money that, has also been generated because of uh, this kind of oligarchy that was developed from colonialism has just been passed on from generation to generation. And so what that means is that when you speak out about an issue that you feel very strongly about, whether it's land or you know, climate change or a coal plant, you're not just speaking out against an issue, you're speaking out against a family who's generating wealth off that issue. Mm. And so then it becomes a very personal uh, war, it becomes a very personal feud. And so, yeah, basically in a nutshell, it's not that all of these different entities like a mining company and, and, and you know, a timber company and, you know, all these different kinds of companies, they're not just standalone companies. They, they, are, they are family businesses. They are family networks. And I, it's really hard to explain when you're not here and you haven't been in the, you haven't been here for a long time, that literally we're all related <laughs> mm. on some level. It's such a small island. And so I think a really big part of it also is that it isn't as simple as, it's not cut, as cut and dry as just politics and separating you know, one from the other. It's you're getting at somebody's family when you're attacking their business. Um, yeah. And there's a lot of that. And because of this kind of patronage system where, you know, and, and nepotistic system of supporting your, you know, your siblings or your relatives, it just becomes a lot, much more convoluted. Mm. And so when you're speaking out against a corporation you're not really maybe on the outside into the press you are but actually you're attacking a family yeah yeah it sounds very far from what we have here um in terms of i think there's there's certain people who will mix public and politic uh sort of political and family life um and and that's always kind of a bit of a, a target for the tabloid newspapers over here and, and things like that but it just doesn't happen on anywhere near that level um in yeah over here at all and yeah sorry you were gonna say no i was just gonna say that it's normalized here so mm. like you said like it becomes like tabloid fodder here it's it's a good thing to come from a good family and to use that you know 
to whatever advantage you can. It's a lineage. It's, mm. yeah, it's, you yeah. know, it's almost like your royal family. <laughs> yeah. But we have well, lots of them. Well, thank you for sharing. Um, Cause I think it's a really important thing to cover. And I think um, kind of briefly jumping back a bit off topic onto the, um, you know, starting to, I talked about Mitzi and also with, with you, I think this is very much the case um, in terms of you said you didn't have social media very, very much um, before. And I think it's, we, uh, a lot of people, especially uh, in the global North and, and in the West and in, in the UK and the US and all those countries, um, that we have this mentality of if, there's no pictures of it if it's not on social media it didn't happen and i think that's yeah a really negative mentality first of all but i think it's just talking to people like you goes to show that you know you can do incredible conservation work and people are doing frontline activism and on the ground conservation work without instagram without social media without a huge following without a presence online and i think a lot of people just yeah they have this very kind of toxic mentality that yeah if it if you didn't document it in some way in in some sort of fashionable way it just didn't happen <laughs> and I think that especially in yeah I found with with activists in the global south and conservationists environmental defenders um a lot of them can't use social media for safety reasons or can't use it for their activism um and I think that's yeah it's important for my listeners in the uk to to really understand that that area and i think um so i want to kind of this is sort of the last big question again quite a loaded one but uh i know there's a project you wanted to talk about um before you messaged me so there's a bit of context you're working to establish another national park in um southern palawan called kamsad is that right yeah so, um, that that area is I, I did a bit of reading last night um a bit of sort of background reading and it's really important area for like local communities local biodiversity um you have a home to lots of endemic and critically endangered species uh, including the the philippine pangolin obviously such a targeted creature globally and we had world pangolin day on saturday um so that was kind of fresh and it, it's a species that will be fresh in a lot of people's minds, but also that in recent years as, as sort of more awareness has been raised and it's captured a lot of people's hearts, I think. But obviously there are, there's so much more in that area than just the pangolin, as, as cute, as adorable as they are. Um, so could you kind of tell us about this project and also why it's so important to establish this national park kind of both on a local and international level? Yeah, certainly. So, as I mentioned earlier, our mission is to protect the Philippines' last 3% of remaining forest, pristine forest. Uh, a, a big thing to remember also is the Philippines is one of only 17 megadiverse countries on the planet. And even though we're missing so much forest, we've lost so much forest cover, we still have the highest concentration of terrestrial biodiversity on the planet. So what that means is like in one square meter of Philippine land, you will see more diversity of fauna and flora than anywhere else on the planet. Wow. So it's a pretty big responsibility and, you know, just data in and of itself. 
And so the work that we're doing at the Center for Sustainability, PH, is we actually want to protect all remaining key biodiversity areas left in Palawan. And so we're looking at about 310,000 hectares. So, so far we've protected 41,000, which is what we have in, um, in Cleopatra's Needle. And we're hoping to expand those efforts by going to a whole new area in southern Palawan called Gunsad. And what that means in the local Tagbanwa dialect is where the waters fall. So at the peak, they have these really stunning and incredible waterfalls above 1,000 meters. It's very dramatic. And the Tagbanwa have basically named the area over this incredible watershed system. And so, yeah, as you mentioned, we did a, we started the project there basically to do quite similar uh, efforts as what we conducted in Cleopatra's Needle. And so that includes the community organizing, the scientific research and the political lobbying. And so with the, we're at the community organizing part at the moment. So really just starting to get to know our local communities and then from there we've also started a little bit of scientific research so no specimen collection yet like nothing too invasive just mm. more of an ocular to understand what's going on and we've also had some really incredible findings obviously the palawan pangolin or the philippine pangolin we also have the asian small clawed otter in the area we have the palawan scops owl we have i think it's 24 out of 26 of the Palawan endemic birds wow. are just in this small site that we're trying to protect. And so it's just the beginning. And as I recounted earlier, the Cleopatra's Needle project took us, yeah, five years. And so if you can imagine <laughs> with this Kensad project, it's hopefully it'll be a bit more efficient. The biggest issue is the lack of resources. We're a grassroots organization. Uh, there's only six of us. And if you can imagine, we're doing countless activities from having a social media presence to organizing meetings at the community level mm -hmm. to uh, fundraising, to knocking on doors of our local politicians, liaising with our academic institutions to see if they'll on board with us to conduct research. I, I can't, I guess I can't describe well enough just how much, how many different skills we're executing in one day as a team. So that's, I think that's what's really hard as well uh, as a small grassroots organization to be kind of constantly on this uphill of lacking resources and trying to find ways to have more funding down at this very, very local level. I think that, you know, we see there's, you know, we have all these really big international environmental organizations uh, that have these great fundraising arms and, you know, have a whole social media team and have, you know, an admin team and all of that kind of stuff. And we don't have that. And so while we don't have that, it's very hard for us to kind of expand uh, mm. and work like a little bit faster. And so I think that, yeah, there's also, I think there's also a lot of work to be done in environmental philanthropy for that to happen, for there to be more trust for local communities and local change makers to have access to funds that aren't um, so restricting and, you know, 
in a lot of, you know, we just had our annual planning retreat last week. And one of the biggest issues that came up with our team was that like one of the biggest threats to our work is restricted funding. Mm -hmm. And it's this idea that you have these grants that like micromanage what you do on the ground. And for those of you in your audience who, who have done on the ground work, you know how dynamic it is, especially in countries like the Philippines or the quote unquote global South, you know, the political winds change very quickly. You need to be able to respond dynamically to that. And when you're tied up in these kind of reporting cycles and you can't respond properly, it's very, it's very challenging. So I think that's like one of the hardest parts with, like that's also what makes this project, projects like this so long because you know, it's not just being active on the ground. It's doing all this kind of bureaucratic stuff to just keep afloat and sustainable as an organization. Thanks for sharing that. I think a lot of my, my listeners will find that really useful. Um, and to kind of get a bit of, as I said at the beginning, get an insight into how these things work um, on the ground. Because, yeah, a lot of them emerging students um, who really want to um, get into this. A lot of people, I think... I don't know I, I sort of about the global uh, nuances and the different, um, obviously different courses, but just, just relating it to kind of what I know over here. Um, a lot of people on my course want to be science communicators. They want to use their degrees in photography and filmmaking to kind of tell the story, work with researchers and, and make a difference. So yeah, finding out how, so how these projects work in a the sort of different, all these little things um, are always really useful. I think kind of this is a this is a bit of a new part of the podcast, and it's kind of uh, sort of not coming to the end quite, but but kind of ending on a bit of a positive note. I'm I'm putting together a list of books that my guests have recommended, kind of like a like a book club hit list. Um, and I'd love to know if if you have a favourite book relating to wildlife conservation or science that I could tell my listeners about? I'm trying to think about... It's, it's, a, it's like a, yeah, like asking someone who's a big reader their favourite book is like asking a mother what their favourite child is. Like, it's not... Yeah. It's, it's very... Yeah, it's a, it's a big question. But. Uh, I actually, because of my own background and I look at everything through political... Uh, through a political lens... I would actually say that I would actually say George Orwell's 1984. It sounds a bit like it's a bit left of center from, you know, environmental books per se. The reason why I say it though is because it talks about the importance of language and mm. it talks about, you know, what happens when you take out, have you read it actually? I haven't. I it's, it's like the top of my list, but if you see this, this, like obviously my listeners won't see this but that top shelf of books behind me those are all yeah. ones that I haven't even started yet so okay. I, yeah I, I can't add any more to my list it's, <laughs> it's, it's up there it's up there yeah so I would just say 1984 because it really it struck me for its preoccupation with language and for science communicators these days I think what's really important obviously is capturing nuance and what this book is all about is when you start taking words out of a vocabulary, you start losing nuance and you start losing effectively your voice. And so what this book was about and what this book is about is 
you need to keep adding more words. You need to keep adding more vocabulary. You need to keep creating more nuances in whatever the message is that you want to communicate. And so I think for science communicators, it's especially storytellers because of the fact that you're capturing emotions. It's very, it's almost, you know, you see this in the media all the time. And this is one of the things that I really struggle with as well as someone who's really on the front lines mm. is that something that I've seen is this thing of, um, you know, pitting environmental groups against indigenous communities. This is a really classic one that I've come across and that obviously I have very strong opinions about myself uh, being kind of, you know, sitting in that intersection. And I've also seen a lot of storytelling that, you know, just kind of propagates this idea of like environmental groups are just coming in to do this, that, and the other with no respect to indigenous communities or indigenous communities are doing this, that, and the other, and they're completely apart from environmental groups. And I think that, you know, our greater media and science communicators in general have to start bridging that gap and creating more nuance in the language and what really happens in relationships between indigenous groups and environmental groups. Um, and that's just one, you know, that's just one kind of cog in the entire machine that is the protection of biodiversity these days. Because if we look at it statistically, indigenous communities are now in charge of some of the most diverse er biodiverse areas in the world. And so, yeah, I would go with 1984 about expanding our vocabulary, whether that your vocabulary is words or whether it's your pictures and how you capture emotion, how you capture that connection of, of humanity with, with our, you know, wildlife, our outside world. That's a really great answer. And I think it's, it's really amazing that um, it's great that you've been talking about the importance of working with local communities throughout this episode. Um, because the the episode that I that will come out just before this, um, I was speaking to an Indonesian scientist who studies Exeter, like just around the corner, and um, yeah, she she gave a very nice explanation of kind of the work they do and the importance of working with communities uh, in Borneo, and I think it's kind of yeah, definitely the the sort of same same thing really. It's it's a it's a worldwide. Um, it's a kind of description and the import, an important thing that can be translated to any country. Um, and yeah, that's a definitely a good choice as well, a book and definitely a bit, bit different from the ones that I've been given so far. So yeah, really good to feature that. Um, before we, we finish, we're just going to do like this little quick fire round. So this is like four questions that I ask all my guests. So first off, what's your favorite animal? Butterflies. <laughs> Brilliant. Do you have a do you have a particular species or just the whole the whole group? We have one, and right now I, its name has escaped me. I'm gonna find it and share it with you. But oh the Palawan birdwing. Hello. Palawan birdwing. It's an incredible, it's really big. It's like two hands when it gets really big. And it's really beautiful and it's a, like a royal blue, like a peacock blue. Where's a place you like to go and connect with nature? Somewhere you feel kind of the most at home outside? Snorkeling in the ocean. Do you have a conservation hero? My team. I think that we work in impossible conditions. We're not paid properly at all. A lot of us, all of us come from very humble families. 
who we have to support. And it'd be much easier for us to take a government position or, you know, take a corporate position at one of the local mining companies. You know, it's much more secure work. It's much easier. Mm. And yet they turn up to work every day, ready to fight, ready to keep a smile on throughout anything. So yeah, my team. And last off, how do you take your coffee? I don't. <laughs> so I am very hyperactive already. I've been, I'm very proud of myself because I feel like I've been relatively calm on this podcast. <laughs> um, and yeah, so I don't, I don't need any. I was going through a phase of like black tea, which I think is very English. Um, and I was bouncing off the walls. And so I don't need, I think coffee is, is just going to, yeah, would just send me over the edge. But the funny thing is, is that like many conservationists who have to support themselves, I've waitressed a lot throughout my lifetime. And so I've served many, many cups of coffee. And I love the smell of it. It makes me very nostalgic. It makes, you know, it reminds me of like my university days and even like post-university when I was, you know, still really struggling. Um, Yes, it's a very nostalgic smell, but I just, I don't drink it. I mean, I think we can we can wrap it up there, really. But before we finish, I just want to ask, uh, where can people find you? What are kind of your online handles? How can people get involved with you and your projects and, and your work? Yeah, definitely. So our organization is at Center for Sustainability PH on Instagram, and that's British spelling. Um, and then you can also find me on Instagram, Karina, K-A-R-I-N-A, May. M-A-Y underscore Reyes. Um, And if for those that are out there that are under 26, we just launched our 1 million letters campaign in partnership with Reserver, the Youth Land Trust. So if you have a chance to get online, if you write a letter, we're basically collecting letters to send to COP15 for the Biodiversity Convention to lobby for them to adopt the 30 by 30 framework, which is protecting 30% of the planet by 2030. And for every letter, we get a match from our donors of $3 that will go toward our project in Kensad and $3 that will go toward Reserve's project to establish forest, uh, a forest reserve in Ecuador. So that's $6 for every letter so and that's wow. just by writing a letter like you don't need to donate anything you just need to get creative you know yeah. if you just want to draw your letter um but yeah all the details are on our instagram uh so Amazing. please join and i urge you to join yeah definitely <laughs> that's something I'll, I'll share around uh my listeners and on my instagram as well so definitely an amazing project to get involved with uh well all that's left to say really is, is thank you for taking up your to taking your time to be here and for speaking and for sharing some really important and yeah vital information and really useful perfect thank you so much i am um, thank you for having me i look forward to learning more from your podcast thanks again to karina for taking the time to speak to me today All the links to her social media will be in the description down below. So in today's episode, we're featuring coffee from Girl with a Porter Filter. This company pride themselves on micro-roasting exceptional coffee, and they work with ethical suppliers such as Omwani Coffee Company, who work to connect specialty coffee roasters directly with farmers, with an ethos of total transparency. 
At Girl with a Portafilter, they also consciously eliminate the use of plastic on the packaging to the absolute minimum, and their minimal design is printed directly onto the bags, eliminating the need for plastic stickers. You can find out more about the details of this particular coffee which came from Burundi through the link in the episode description. If you feel like you've learned anything of value from the podcast, please consider supporting me through a one-off donation on Ko-fi. Reaching my current target on Ko-fi means I can buy ethically sourced coffee, expand my kit for in-person and remote podcast recording, and support local and indigenous coffee growing companies, as well as supporting any contributors to the podcast. Coffee with Conservationists is now available on Spotify, Anchor, Google and Apple Podcasts, and a few more places. As ever, thank you all so much for listening. I've been your host, George Steedman jones and this is the Coffee with Conservationists podcast.